This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Peter Porsche, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on with you. So, Peter, you have had a uh, legendary career as a trader on Wall Street, and uh, very early on in your career were um, on the founding team of the Robin Hood Foundation, which is now one of the great charitable organizations in New York City. Yes. Before we get into your chosen passage, which for those of you with the Bible in front of you is Leviticus 25, 35 to 38, how did you predict the 1987 stock market crash? Well, thanks for going back and, and reminding me. You were a very young man at that point. I mean, you yes. were, it wasn't from experience. And, and true. And as you can see, my hair is still completely blonde, just as it was back then. And that's, that's the beauty. Is it fake now? Yeah, that's the beauty of the internet. You know, when people say, hey, can you send a headshot for something? I can always choose a decade and make it look like I've never aged. But one of the things that, that we noticed then in... It's not too dissimilar in the sense of monetary and, and, and fiscal policy to today is that during periods of major technology innovation, you have tremendous growth in stock markets. You have a number of entrants participating in that market. And at the end of that, there tends to be what I call, so you have sort of a deflationary boom, and then you have a deflationary bust. And what we were able to do at Tudor is we were one of the early ones to take data and apply that to computers, which weren't there. We spent, think about this, 1989, just to give you an idea, computers that we had bought beforehand for a million dollars, we could not give away because just the cost of operating them. That's how fast technology was changing in the PC space and hardware to software. So we felt that there was a model that could be there. I hired summer interns. They were going through books and typing in data into Excel spreadsheet, things that took weeks then. You can do in seconds now and even on your, your phone if you go to uh, Fred, the Federal Reserve website. Huh. So that model itself kept tracking what was happening, both in terms of the activity of the marketplace and of the economy as a whole. And it was remarkable. And like 29, where you had policy disagreements at the end, we had policy disagreements here in 87. And that led us to have a lot of confidence that the market was going to decline significantly. But one of the things that's misunderstood, it's not such a large short position in the equity market, it was the fact that the Federal Reserve was going to provide a whole bunch of liquidity to the marketplace and that bonds would rally like crazy. Sound familiar? And that's immediately what happened. What was so interesting is the parallel of the day-to-day -day moves over that period of time, making adjustments for the fact that in the 20s, you traded on Saturdays, you did not trade on Saturdays here, uh, and adjusting for volatility. 
it really was incredible. But the credit really has to go to my boss and former partner, Paul Jones, because no matter how successful I was as an analyst, he was a far better trader. I could give him the exact low and the exact high. And if I were right, he'd still make more money because there's a skill and a discipline because nothing goes right up and nothing goes right down. And one thing that was very critical at that period was the behavior of the stock market in 1986, where you had quick, sharp drops, both in July and September, and then you immediately came back. That was forecast by the model, and that gave us greater confidence that it was likely to continue and what the outcome would be. And that hardship led us to believe that things were going to be difficult for many people. And hence, we started the Robinhood Foundation. Oh, interesting. So, so the stock market crash uh, precipitated the founding of Robinhood. That is correct. It was, so you founded Robinhood in around um, October, November of that year, 87? Well, early 88. You know, oh, so January right afterwards. Right afterwards. So you kind of had the idea, you saw all this, uh, this, this human loss as a direct correlation with the stock market loss, and you decided to do something about it in kind of Q4 of 87, and you started Robinhood in 88? Correct. Interesting. And, and that now Robinhood has annual revenues of about $150 million a year, right? So that first year in Robinhood, we gave away $65,000. $65,000, okay. $65,000. And last year, as you mentioned, we gave out about $120 million. And Robinhood is focused on the five boroughs of New York City. And its mission is mobility from poverty, or that's what it was prior to COVID. And now we've had to pivot a little bit to try to deal with the rapid rate at which people have lost jobs, lost income, and try to keep them from falling in to poverty. And that is so essential. And you're doing a legendary job at it. And uh, so interesting that you saw this kind of human devastation result of a 20% drop in the stock market overnight and just responded so quickly and so profoundly and so substantively with something that has been sustained now for a generation and God willing will be for another generation. Let's get into the biblical text here, which is Leviticus uh, 2535. Um, If your brother becomes impoverished, and his means falter in your proximity, you shall strengthen him, proselyte or resident, convert or not, so that he can live with you. Do not take from him interest and increase, for you shall fear your God and let your brother live with you. Do not give him uh, money for interest. Do not give him food for increase. I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be God unto you. So Peter, of all passages in the Bible, um, why is Leviticus uh, 17 the one that you, uh, you chose to discuss today? Well, I think that in a nutshell is a little bit of the philosophy of of Robin Hood. New York City, New York as a whole has been great for us, for those who've had success, those who've had participation in the financial markets in particular. Those who are less fortunate, one has two attitudes. They can say, okay, I'm good. I deserve everything I've got. And this person over here, well, they just don't have the opportunity. They don't have the skills. They're sluggish, however you want to describe that. That is not our view. Nobody wakes up in the morning 
saying, oh, gee, I hope I lose my job today. Or they wake up in the morning and go, oh, boy, I hope that somebody in my family has a substance abuse problem or I wake up in the morning. Or a devastating illness. Yes. And so those passages say you, these people, your fellow uh, people that share New York City with you, they are your brothers and sisters. And it is incumbent upon us, people who have been fortunate, as the passage says, to help them and to try to help them without judgment as to how they got into their particular circumstances. Right. And, and one thing that's very interesting in the passage, and, and this is not only in this passage, but in many passages in the Torah, is that it will be speaking about something seemingly every day, like the interest you're allowed to charge or the profit you're allowed to make on food or anything else we might qualify as mundane. And then all of a sudden it says, I am Hashem, your God. In other words, God is, is asserting himself and saying, what you might consider mundane, I'm here. This is as important to me as anything else. What you charge, how you treat people in business, these are matters of divine importance. I care. It defines himself right here in the midst of the passage about interest, which is, I think, says so much about about God and how he wants us to interact with him on earth. And it's how you should treat other people as family. If your brother, your sister, and you go, hey, you know what? I need to borrow $50. Are you going to charge some interest on that? No, they're family. Those who are in New York City, who you share, who's made it the greatest city in the world, they are all your brothers and sisters. And so you want to help them as best you can without making. So to me, I, I equate interest, not just as interest as it seems there, right. but not as a reputation, as a feeling that you're better than they are, that you're taking pity on them. They are fellow human beings. They are a bit out of sorts right now, and you're going to help them. Many times when I talk to people and they go, oh, you know, you're very nice for doing this. I go, that's absolutely not true. Right. I'm doing this because I'm an incredibly selfish person. And I know that you're going to get up, you're going to be successful down the road. And because I'm so self selfish, I may need you. And I know you'll be there for me. Well, I, th I think that's right. But I think it's even more than that. You know, there's no Jewish concept or Hebrew word for charity, because charity is something you do out of the kindness of your heart. We have tzedakah, which is about obligation and responsibility. It actually means righteousness. It's not an option. It's not like I could be charitable or not. You have to give tzedakah. It's actually considered in the Jewish tradition as important as all the other commandments combined. So when someone says to you, you're so nice or so generous, the implication there is that you have some kind of choice in the matter, but you really don't. It's just a matter of being your obligation, your responsibility. It's not, at least in the Jewish context, there's no notion of charity as such. And I think that question implies this kind of cultural acceptance that there is an idea of charity when, when we reject that. Yeah, we can use another term that's been popularized over the last couple of years, quid pro quo. You don't do the work that you do to try to assist others. And as it says earlier in the passage in Leviticus here, where you take your field and you leave it and you let others harvest it, you let others have your meat because you're just, it's the right thing to do. There isn't like, hey, I'm doing this because I'm going to get something on the other side or you owe me. You do it out of the goodness of, 
of who you are as a person. And that is to complete payback. If you do it because you expect something in the return, you're never going to be happy. To me, happiness is really just a great feeling when you do something and you know that it's the right thing and that this person or group of people or this community is going to be set on a path that their lives are going to be better. Do you expect anything in return? Absolutely not. But what I get is serenity. Yes. And the passage that you're referring to is about the corners of your field. The, the also the, the very clear implication is that it's actually not yours, that when God gives you wealth, it's not yours, it's his, and he's given you the responsibility to allocate it effectively. So you have a responsibility to do that. That's why you have a field you can't take the corner. You have, and the corner is a bit. It's such as a small piece. It's a significant part of the field. You have to. You have to leave it, and that gets back to the idea that we don't have a concept of charity. It's one of obligation, responsibility, and it's a core part of what it means to be righteous. You can't be righteous without giving. And you know, in 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 Hebrew, the word uh, to give. It's also the case in the transliteration is natan. It's a palindrome that when you give, you receive. It's the same thing in the Hebrew and English, N-A-T-A-N, the same equivalent in the, in the Hebrew is that when you give, you receive, and when you receive, you give, and it's all part of just one act. There's not two kinds of people, givers and receivers. It's everyone together in, in community. Absolutely. You know, when I talk to people and they say, well, are you religious? Are you not? I go, the Jewish philosophy is not that complicated. It's basically do unto others. And by keeping that constantly in the foreground of my thought, you want to be nice to everybody. You want to try to be as patient as you can, particularly as we're living in this COVID environment and you think, I should be at the front of the line to get a delivery. I should be able to box all these other people out because I have more money and therefore I want this tomorrow or I run it right away, or I'm going to call somebody up. The more stressed the system is, the more important it is for everyone to realize how fortunate they are. And that opens their eyes and sits back and be patient. We had a call with a high school chemistry teacher in the worst hit section of the Bronx. And by talking to those people, it opens your eyes and tells you how much more you want to do. Everyone there, so many are essential workers. They don't have the technology to homeschool. When you have people in that area that live in shelters, one of the things that we did at Robinhood was we worked with Verizon Spectrum. And when they were locked down in their rooms and they didn't have Wi-Fi in their rooms, we helped uh, wire those rooms. So they, even when the school gave them an iPad, if you don't have wireless, how do you study? These little marginal things may make a huge difference down the road. It's the pebble in the water for them. And you may never know, but you did the right thing. And that's what Leviticus tells us to do. Just try and do the right thing, as Spike Lee would say. Well, yes. No, I mean, I, th you, I think your quote was from um, Rabbi Hillel, which he, which he was he was asked to he was asked to um, teach the Torah while standing on one foot. And he said uh, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow uh, this is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. So I would say, according to Rabbi Hillel, that is the core, but there's a whole lot to learn so that you can go and, and do it. And uh, that's one of the, the things that uh, is gifted to us from the Torah. Well, it's a constant learning process. 
because you have to learn about yourself. If you don't learn about yourself and study your own failures, whether that's in your business or in your interactions with other people and the ability to apologize, then you're not going to be able to study the Torah and move forward and be of assistance to other people. So when you talk with young analysts or other professionals on Wall Street as they're starting their careers about Robin Hood and about what inspired you and your colleagues to start in, and do you get the sense from them that, uh, that this kind of giving is an obligation and they want to do as much of it as they can, or is it a, a, a process that requires education? I think it's a bit of both. I start with every line, which is, if you give it away, you will make it. If you spend your whole existence saying, I need to make it, I need to make it, I need to make it. And then at the end, I'll give it away. Time just has a way of, of catching up on you. But if you give it away, if that's who you are and you realize your priorities, then I think you'll be more successful in your career because you're going to have better interactions. You're going to have a uh, better temperament because this is a business where you have to deal with failure all the time. So there, it's a mixed group. There are many people, and I'm very pleased, pleased that, you know, my, my own children are sort of leading that effort as the next generation at Robinhood. And when they go out and they talk to people, and particularly now, they sense that they really want to give back. What's happening socially in the streets says, wait a second, this is a time where every marginal activity, whether that's giving dollars or giving time, either one can be very helpful to people. And as you notice, even in this, it doesn't talk about the transfer of money all the time in Leviticus. It says, you can be, as you just said, I can be a farmer, I can leave some land, uh, you know, unharvest, and I can let people take from there. That could be my contribution. In addition, I'm taking somebody in, my brother, or I can lend them, but I don't charge interest. So there's multiple ways to help people. It takes doesn't just take money. It takes time. It takes innovation. And I also often say, if you're starting your career and you don't have a whole lot of money, but what you can do is offer your expertise to all the organizations that Robinhood funds because they need smart people to help them. Right. And I, I would say that uh, that in terms of young people giving their money, uh, giving becomes a habit. When you give when you don't have a lot, you'll give when you do have a lot and you'll just become a, a giver uh, just by by giving. You, be, you become a giver. Well, that's the mitzvah project. Everyone starts when they have their bar and bat mitzvah. Exactly. And, you know, uh, Rabbi David Wolpe says that, uh, you know, he said, I've been a rabbi for 35 or so years. And he said, um, I've never met anybody who says, Rabbi, I'm going bankrupt or I've hit severe financial problems for giving too much to charity. Well, that goes to my line. If you give it away, you'll make it. That's exactly right. And the Torah actually makes kind of a promise like that. It's the only one of its kind in the Torah that if you, if you give, you will receive. And if we think about it in a religious or secular context, I don't think we can name anybody who's gone bankrupt because they've given too much to charity. Have you, can you think of anybody? No, 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 I, and, I can't. And, and, and I think that part of it describes what their sort of their moral gyroscope is as they approach their business and that success, what comes first? That's where I said, if you make it, if you give it away, you'll make it. What comes first? Is it the intellectual approach to helping those 
who are less fortunate, or is it the intellectual approach that leads to a successful business? I think the two go hand in hand. And if they get too far out of whack, then you're in trouble. Yes. Now, moving from um, one text, the Torah, to, to another. So we're going to move to Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And this is always the, uh, the uh, concluding question. He says that in 1968, he said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to this man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years in and around Wall Street, as a young trader, as an entrepreneur in trading and trading software, you've seen so much, you've met so many people, seen and met everybody over a generation. So Peter, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Wow, I was going to ask you to end the conversation what it's like to be the rabbi's husband. <laughs> we could do that afterwards. Much of <laughs> Great, by the way, that's the answer. Much less uh, challenging than that. I've learned that if you want to be happy, you can't keep thinking about tomorrow. You need to be present. You know, it's not the next trade. It's not the last trade. It's where am I today and what can I do to make myself a better individual? And that is the most important thing. The the coulda, shoulda, woulda, or the jealousy because this other person is more successful. We always tend to worry about what we don't have. People that are happy are satisfied with where they are on the, on the basis of what they've done, and they don't begrudge others. And they focus on those, as I said, in like Robin Hood, who are less fortunate. You take pleasure in raising people up to your level rather than trying to bring other people down to your level. So that's one. The second thing I've learned, I guess I'll say it in two parts. The first part is it's enormously frustrating being a Mets fan in New York when there are so many Yankees fans and, and, and the Mets are always a mess. So that's, that's a big problem for me. But I think that that's... That's a little problem. That's, that's part of the humbling nature of being a fan. But the second thing I've learned from people is that engage them, talk to them, care about them. You know, you don't want to be one of those people that walk into a room and you meet a young person and you go, okay, enough about you. Let's talk about me. If you engage them, if you listen to them, and, and I always say that sort of loyalty comes from the top down, not from the bottom up. Paying somebody a paycheck does not make them loyal. Loyalty comes because you are interested in them. Interesting. I try to do that as much as I can, then they will be motivated. So those are sort of two things that I've learned. Great advice. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on The Rabbi's Husband. And uh, I look forward to uh, circumstances allowing us to get together again soon. I look forward to a nice Shabbat dinner and, and Absolutely. hopefully sooner rather than later. That's right. Well, thank you. Thank you. You are the God of the